0: Hi there, and welcome to Straight Talk for Real Life, produced by Hewlett-Packard Enterprise, episode number seven. You toss, you turn, you lie there, and no matter what you do, you can't go to sleep. If that sounds familiar, stay awake for this one. This episode is for you. Welcome to Straight Talk for Real Life. I'm Bob Peacock. We live in a society that is generally overworked, over-pressured, and under-rested, and admitted a lot of times we put that pressure on ourselves. Somehow we figure that if we work longer hours, we'll get more done. But if you're not sleeping well, you could actually be slower, less creative, and even more stressed. There are few issues that cause more stress and anxiety than sleep problems. But the good news is that sleep conditions are treatable. As you'll find out today, sleep is as important to your health as nutrition and exercise. In this episode, we'll talk with Dr. Chris Winter, a medical doctor who has dedicated his life's work to the subject of sleep. He's a board-certified neurologist, a specialist in the brain, and double board-certified sleep specialist who runs a state-of-the-art sleep clinic in Central Virginia. And he has written a best-selling book titled The Sleep Solution, Why Your Sleep is Broken and How to Fix It. It's available in multiple languages and has already sold more than 20,000 copies this year. Welcome, Chris. Oh, Thank you for having me, Bob. I appreciate it. Well, congratulations on the success of the book. Why our fascination with sleep? And why do so many people have a problem getting a good night's sleep?
1: I think we're fascinated by it because it's something we all do. I mean, I always say as a neurologist, if that's how I introduce myself at a party, I mean, you know, unfortunately, somebody will have a a relative with with Alzheimer's disease or knows somebody who may have had a stroke or struggles with chronic migraines. But if I call myself a sleep doctor at a party, you know, everybody has a question or a story or or a thought or a, a belief. So it's... It's something that really you know, touches everyone. It's, it's a part of what we do every day, um, and it really kind of rides this line between science and mythology and the stuff that your grandma told you. you know. mm-hmm. It's a fun topic. It's relatable, and as you said in your introduction, it's important. Um, it really does create this foundation for our health that maybe in decades past we saw as being something you really couldn't control. It was sort of like eye color, a trait. But now we really feel like, you know, we can control our nutrition, we can control our exercise, and, and to some extent we can take control of our sleep. You've said
0: that there's kind of a fundamental lack of understanding about sleep. The internet and the mattress companies try to tell us that we can control our sleep if we just buy the right mattress or set the right temperature in our bedrooms, things like that. And as a sleep doctor, I'm sure that people have come to you complaining that they never sleep at all. But
1: you've said that that just can't be true, isn't that right? Yes, so if if you're listening to this and feel like you can't sleep, that is a, a phrase, you know, quote, can't sleep, end quote, that I always have had issues with. And I feel like we use it in a way that's not meaningful. So humans have to sleep. It's not it, it's not something that's even debatable. We have to eat, we gotta drink some fluids from time to time. We have to sleep. Now, that's not to say that an individual may or may not sleep well or sleep enough, but the idea that You know, patients tell me this on a daily basis. Well, I take these three drugs to sleep, you know, and if I don't take them, I won't sleep. That's simply not a true statement. So I I think it's very important. And one of the reasons why I wrote a book was I felt like we all need to sort of have certain fundamental understandings about sleep. And there's no place you can really go to learn about sleep. I mean, you kind of learn from talking to others or what your parents tell you and and unfortunately a lot of people are growing up in households where it's get some sleep or you'll get sick or if you don't go to sleep now you're not going to get an A on your vocabulary test and so there's a lot of weird things we sort of grow up believing and, and, and feeling when it comes to sleep that a lot of times simply understanding how sleep works can be therapeutic in its own right so I think it's fun to have opportunities like this to talk about sleep and really flesh out what people are feeling and thinking and, and, and try to set the record straight and help them find information and avenues for treatment when that's necessary. Mm-hmm.
0: You, you also said that insomnia is not an inability to sleep, but rather it reflects a person's dissatisfaction with the quality of their sleep and usually is accompanied by some anxiety uh, about that perceived lack of sleep. Is that right?
1: It is. Insomnia is a very poorly understood and communicated entity. And and you're exactly right. So if you ask 100 people you know, stand in the lobby of the building you work in, the first hundred people who walk in, ask them, what's insomnia? They're gonna tell you, oh, it's when a person can't sleep. And that's not a true definition of insomnia. Insomnia is really a two-part definition. It's an individual who's not sleeping when, or kind of in the way they want to. So maybe a person goes to bed at night and it takes them an hour or two hours to fall asleep. So that's part one. Part two is you have to have a sort of negative emotional response to part A, meaning if I'm at that dinner party we were talking about, I talk to somebody, and i like, what do you do? Well, I'm a sleep doctor. Oh, that's interesting. And I say, well, tell me about your sleep. What time do you go to bed? I go to bed around 10. How long does it take you to fall asleep? And it takes me two hours. My first question is always, how do you feel about that? Mm. It's patient or the person at the party says, oh, I don't care. I kind of like lying in there in bed awake, and it's nice to be in a climate-controlled room, some food in the cupboard, my person that I love sleeping next to me, and I like to think about work the next day, situations you know, the previous day I could have handled better. Like, I kind of like having that period of an hour or two to reflect before I fall asleep. And that person, even though it's taken them two hours to fall asleep, really doesn't have insomnia. You know, contrast that to the person says, I get in bed at night, it takes me, oh my gosh, 10, 15, maybe even 20 minutes to fall asleep but it drives me crazy, I cannot shut my mind off. That person's got insomnia because they're not satisfied by the time it takes them to fall asleep and they're upset about it. So, you know, we try to say in the book, insomnia is not an inability to sleep. Every one of us will fall asleep. It's It's going to happen. So we just have to have sort of faith in that and understand that, let's elevate our dialogue about what's wrong with our sleep. When somebody says, I can't sleep, I'm not saying you don't have a problem. I'm just saying, look, the problem is not that you can't sleep, it's maybe you wake up in the night and have trouble going back to sleep right away, or you struggle to fall asleep initially, or you wake up 30 times, but they're all brief during the night, or you sleep great, but still feel tired the next day. So let's talk more specifically about what's brought you here. Because when you talk about the inability to sleep, you end up like Michael Jackson, getting a bunch of pills that are meant to sedate, not to help you sleep, they're meant to sedate you, which is a completely different thing than sleep, and generally don't have very positive outcomes from it.
0: In your experience, what is the number one cause of sleep
1: deprivation? Okay, so this is important. Now we have radically switched gears in this conversation and gone from insomnia, which like we've already established, is not sleep deprivation, in fact, when you talk to insomnia patients, even the ones who tell me, you come to my clinic, I haven't slept at all in the last nine months, you would think, wow, a person who hasn't slept in nine months, they must be really sleepy. And they will often follow that conversation point up with, you know what, and when I lay down to take a nap during the day, I can't fall asleep. Mm. Mm -hmm. So that's not the way a sleep-deprived person operates. If you think about a food-deprived person, I'm picturing a significantly food-deprived person as maybe inside of a dumpster looking for something to eat. Like they are driven to eat things that have been thrown out because their drive to eat is so high, they don't care anymore. So when you think about sleep deprivation, now we're thinking about the individual who's working two jobs drives an Uber in between those two jobs because they need to make a mortgage and a child, a child uh, support payment, and they can't with one job alone in right. this economy. Right. So let's like, look how that person behaves. That person, when they're sitting in line, um, waiting for their number to be called at the deli, not off. They are showing signs of inappropriate, excessive sleepiness. So mm-hmm. when they come to my office, And I asked them, hey, you know, what's going on here? I was at two jobs in the Uber thing working out for you. They're saying to me, listen, I'm nodding off at my primary job. I'm getting in trouble for it um, or I'm falling asleep at stoplights. They are not saying to me, I'm getting in bed and I can't fall asleep. They've got the complete opposite end of the spectrum problem. So what you're hitting on is a very important one in the media, which is, we talk a lot about the dangers and the ill effects of sleep deprivation, in which they are. When people say, I think you need more sleep, you say, look, as long as I'm at three or four hours, I'm fine. You're actually not. You're not fine. You might be able to do it. Uh, we certainly did it when we were in medical school and residency, but it was not a healthy or good situation to be in. So. When people talk about sleep deprivation leading to increased risk of cancer, heart disease, automobile accidents, mood disturbance, immune system dysfunction, dementia, that's the individual that we're talking about. The unfortunate thing about the media today is we use sleep deprivation and insomnia interchangeably. So, if you're an insomnia patient who goes to bed at 10 o'clock, takes them two hours to fall asleep, not very sleepy during the day, and you hear the research about sleep deprivation leading to dementia, that is not a great way to go to bed at night thinking, if I don't fall asleep in the next 20 minutes, I am increasing my risk of having dementia. So if you're getting in bed every night taking you two hours to fall asleep, I would say number one, doesn't sound like you're particularly sleepy. Number two, that probably means you're not terribly sleep-deprived, because if you're worried, fall asleep immediately. So number three... Don't worry about it. You are not in that group of people that have been written about that, you know, or these increased risks for having all these terrible things. You are not among that group that they are talking about. However, you are working two jobs and driving an Uber. Then we need to figure out ways to improve your ability to get the sleep that your body needs, even if you have the capacity to deal with that.
0: Right, right. So does sleep deprivation affect people differently? who have behavioral health issues
1: such as like depression? Absolutely, I mean, I, I think that if you had analyzed all of the residents in the hospital working back in, you know, when I was in residency, and at that time uh, being on call every other day was not outlawed like it is now. So we, we, we were what we would call Q2 call. We would go in at, you know, five o'clock in the morning, leave the next day at 5 p.m., go home, you know, be a, be an irritant to your wife, not spend enough time with your child, and then start the process off again the next day at 5 a.m. So if, if a clinician had come in when we were all working, I bet most of us would have been diagnosed with some sort of mood disturbance. Um, I mean, I wasn't happy, my body felt terrible, I wasn't connecting with others, I was just kind of surviving, and a lot of people were in that situation. I think some people have the capacity to deal with it better than others, but I think over the long haul, the way it wears on an individual's psychological health is, is really unmistakable, and it's interesting because it's known that some people have genetic makeups that allow them to deal better with insufficient sleep than others doesn't mean they're healthy. It just means they can kind of do it and still be reasonably functional the next day. But again, I think that yes, I think that can really affect people's anxiety and depression. Because if you think about anxiety, you know, for a lot of individuals who are underslept, that anxiety is your brain's response to, well, we're not getting enough sleep at night to feel more energetic. So I guess we'll just kind of scare ourselves awake. So these individuals can be sort of type A, always busy, always engaged, because their brain figures out very quickly if they relax, they're going to fall asleep. Um, So it's a very negative space for your brain to be in.
0: So you've talked about some of the, the consequences of sleep deprivation. Why is sleep so important? What are some of the benefits of a good night's
1: sleep? Well, the biggest consequence of sleep deprivation is a increased drive to sleep. We have a bunch of unofficial little secret sayings in our clinic. The first one, rule number one in our clinic is sleep always wins. And what I mean by that is even if you set out to not sleep. I'll prove this doctor wrong. I'm gonna videotape myself over the next three weeks not sleeping and show him that, hey, there are people out here who just can't sleep. You're not gonna do it. Uh, You're you're gonna be surprised on that video by how much you actually do sleep. So, Mm -hmm. you know, to me, I, I think that the biggest consequence of sleep deprivation is your brain becomes extremely motivated to sleep. So now you're falling asleep at your kids' soccer games, you're falling asleep at stoplights, you're falling asleep in front of clients or at work and getting in trouble for doing it. Um, And hopefully not falling asleep driving down the interstate when you're in a car. Um, Because the brain that's not rested will start seeking sleep during times when you want to be awake. So that's probably the biggest and most immediate consequence. I mean, there's all kinds of issues that show inflammatory markers in the body go up. So we tend to not fight illness quite as well uh, we tend to not build our rebuild our body the cardiovascular consequences of ins- insufficient sleep are dire this global
0: study said that 51 percent of adults worldwide say they get less sleep than they need on an average night another study from sleep cycle uh, which included data from 48 countries showed that people are getting less than the recommended amount people in Japan are averaging only five hours and 59 minutes a night in Ireland and Great Britain just under seven and a half hours a night and in India uh, they're clocking in about an average of six hours and 20 minutes. Japanese uh, accept napping in the workplace so although they have one of the lowest averages it doesn't include those times when they're napping. So in your book you talk about that the need for sleep varies from person to person and tends to decline as we get older. So is there an answer to the question, how much sleep should we be getting on a regular basis?
1: Sure. So there's there's a lot of things to unpack there. Number one, I believe that data, um, if you were to look at my own tracker that I use, um, it would, and, and these trackers, this is a note, are generally pretty accurate when it comes to average amounts of sleep. So is it perfect at telling us how much dream sleep and REM sleep we're getting? Absolutely not. Is it perfect every night? No. But if somebody wears one pretty consistently over a month or a year, that average time you're sleeping, I I, I believe it. It's, It's probably pretty close to being accurate. So I think there are a lot of people out there who need seven and a half hours of sleep, but get six and a half. And I get it. I mean, you get home and, you know, by the time I kind of unwind and get the kids kind of squared away, I, I kind of like some time just to be with my wife and talk to her, whatever's going on. You know what I mean? Like, so yeah, I get it. It's kind of hard to say, okay, well, it's, it's already 10 o'clock and to get our perfect eight hours, we need to go to bed right now. So I do believe that people are probably slightly more sleep deprived than they used to be. Um, but, but that's somewhat debatable. Again, you know, you got to look at these individuals carefully. Are there does everybody need eight hours of sleep? Absolutely not. So it's really most important for the people who are listening to this podcast you know to answer questions you know like this, you know, honestly, if you're sitting in a dull meeting for an hour and the lights are kind of dim, how difficult is it for you to stay awake hmm. Or do you nod off a lot when you go see movies or if you like to read? I'm, you know, I'm reading a book right now, really enjoying. Do you have trouble reading without nodding off? Do you have trouble doing your work without nodding off? All those can be subtle little signs that whatever number that's showing up on your fitness tracker or your sleep tracker might not be enough for you. So yes, it does sound like, you know, from those numbers that you're giving us that people are probably getting a little bit less than they should.
0: So talk about the difference between sleepiness and fatigue.
1: Sure, it's, a, it's an important point um, that I talk about not only in the book, but I, I talk about on a daily basis in my clinic because we get a lot of patients sent here and they'll say things like, I'm tired. You know, I'm here because I was talking to my doctor. Every time I go, I tell her my biggest complaint is that I'm just tired all the time, so that's why I'm here. And so I think it's important when you think about an individual who's tired, which is a very imprecise word in the, in, in the English language, you're really asking, well, do you mean tired to indicate that you're fatigued? And what I mean by that is you go out to a high school and you run two miles on their track and then you go into their weight room and you lift very intensely for 45 minutes all the while doing some aerobics and some, you know, kind of burpees and push-ups and setups ups and this kind of, you know, a boot camp situation. Okay, boom, you're done. How do you feel? Oof, I'm tired. What you're really saying is you're fatigued. You've expended a lot of energy, you know, the mitochondria in your muscles have expended all their ATP. And now you need to go somewhere, have a smoothie, sit down and recover. You need to re regain that energy that has left your body you don't necessarily mean you're sleepy. Yeah, I was in this boot camp class, Dr. Winter, and we were doing burpees, and at one point I went down for a burpee, I was just so sleepy, I just lay down and took a nap. (laughs) Like, that's not what people are feeling, even though we would use the word tired in both situations. I was running a marathon, I got to mile marker 19, Dr. Winter, I was so tired, I quit. Well you didn't, you weren't so quiet I could barely keep my eyes open and lay down the road and took a nap. Like again, not the same thing, but we use that word to mean both. So when somebody comes to me and says that they're tired, I always ask, when you say tired, do you mean you're fatigued? Do you mean that you're sleepy, like you are struggling to stay awake? You are lying to your boss saying you gotta go check on something and you're going out to your car and sitting along a, a on your phone and taking a nap because you cannot stay awake in your office. That would be sleepy. That's not fatigue, or you can be both. So generally in a sleep clinic, we are looking for people who are excessively sleepy and trying to figure out why they are so, or again, the opposite of the spectrum is, I get in bed, and it takes me four to five hours to fall asleep, okay, well, you're excessively not sleepy, Why would that be? Let's try to figure that out too. So to me, I think that can be a wonderful thing for you to take to your primary care doctor. If If you're somebody who's been struggling with that and say, look, I know I've been telling you for the past two years, I'm just tired all the time. I really feel like I'm dealing more with a sleepiness than a fatigue. Like I have no trouble getting through my aerobics classes. I just, I'm always faking reasons to go out to the warehouse and I hide behind all these reams of paper and I have this little box bed set up where I sneak back there and take naps. If you're saying, no, I, I really don't fall asleep during the day, in fact, I can, not I'm not a good napper, but I feel like somebody stuck a needle inside of me and drained out all the energy. I don't have enough energy to walk up a flight of stairs or let alone run a lap around a track. Okay, well, Maybe you've got a tick-borne illness, maybe you've got a B12 deficiency, maybe your thyroid's not working well. Like, it sounds like there's some reason why you're not developing the right energy uh, during the day. And, and so separating those things out can really be helpful to allowing your doctor to point you in the right direction. So when do you
0: talk to your doctor and when do
1: you go to a sleep doctor? Now, i tell you, look, the average primary care doctor that you're seeing is number one not trained to deal with sleep problems. We I mean, even I during my medical school and residency only got an hour long lecture about sleep in medical school. Well, wow. so the and when you look at patients and the reasons why they seek medical help, of the top seven complaints, one is I can't sleep. Mm-hmm. The other is I'm too sleepy or tired during the day. So the top seven reasons why you're going to go see a doctor two of the seven aren't really covered in medical school which is why you talk to your doctor and they give you Ambien or they give you melatonin or they tell you you know make your bedroom 65 degrees all you know making your bedroom 65 degrees is fine but that's often not going to be a great solution for somebody who's really been struggling for a long time so if you feel like your your sleep problems are not going anywhere then you can talk to your doctor if you feel like I struggle to stay asleep. I've tried a bunch of different pills my primary care doctor is giving me. I'm not that comfortable taking them. I feel like more is going on than what he or she is really capable of fixing. Then you should absolutely either contact a sleep doctor yourself or tell your primary care doctor, look, I appreciate your help and you trying to work on this, but I'd really like a referral to see a sleep specialist and, you know, we'd be happy to help. And I know that you work with,
0: a lot of elite athletes, and these are people who spend so much time examining every aspect of their life that can affect their performance. So They look at their exercise. They look at their clothes and equipment. They look at their diet. And more and more, they're looking at those seven or eight hours of sleep that they're getting, and they're working with you to try to maximize the quality of their sleep. Is there a a general
1: thing that you tell them? No, um, meaning if, if somebody said, look, hey, I'm, I'm Keith, I'm an outfielder for this baseball team, what should I do? It, it's probably a little bit more involved in that instance that, well, let me find out more about you. Like what? What are your beliefs about sleep? When do you sleep? What do you take? Do you have problems with it? Do you feel tired during the day? So, I mean, in general, probably the thing that I would say would be control what you can control. I mean, if you're an elite athlete or you work for Hewlett Packard Enterprise, I, I think it's very important that when you allot that eight hours or seven and a half hours or nine hours for your sleep, that it's sacred and protected. And I'll tell you, one of the things that I see with elite athletes The truly elite athlete, the superstar that if I named the team, you would say, oh, I know, that's the team that such and such plays for. I'll bet that that person that you just named, man or woman, is a really elite sleeper. You don't often see the elite athlete rise to the top of their sport and be kind of a messy sleeper, meaning that when it's 10 o'clock and that's the time they've decided they need to go to bed, There's no TV show, Netflix series, uh, social media thing on their phone, video game. Home crisis is gonna keep that athlete from going to bed at that time. They're disciplined about what they put in their body, they're disciplined about the way they take care of it, their routines, and they are disciplined about their sleep. So, you know, once you've decided, okay, my my schedule is, you know, 10 to seven, that's my nine hours, they go to bed at 10. Now, once you decided to go to bed at 10, your control of the situation is is you're no longer in control of it. So you're either going to fall asleep or you are not. And frankly, I don't really care one way or the other at that point because that's sort of outside of your control. So if you say to me, well, most times I go to bed at 10 and get right to sleep, but occasionally it might take me an hour. That's okay, you know. And one of the least favorite advice pieces I see about sleep is. You get in bed and it's taking you more than 15 minutes or 20 minutes to fall asleep. You should get out and do something until you're ready to sleep. That's fine if you're upset about being in bed awake. But I think the real key to having good sleep and, and avoiding these kinds of pitfalls is I want my patients, I want my athletes, I want my clients at least comfortable being in bed awake, if not excited about it. Hmm. I mean, so when I tell people I'm 46 years old, I will never have insomnia, I'm not saying I'm 46 years old and I will never have sleepless nights. So I have those, probably obvious. My kid backs the car into a wall and they got a bunch of damage there, He's not gotten into the college he wants to, or whatever. Like, you know, something in my personal life. Ah, it didn't go really well. I had a really bad argument with this person, and now I'm dwelling on it at night. That's, that's normal, but I'm never in bed, dwelling on that argument, terrified of not being able to sleep. Like, I just kind of accept it. I like being in bed. I can think about a way to apologize to that person, because I kind of mishandled the situation. Like, so once a person embraces, hey, tonight, you might go to bed and you might not fall asleep right away and they're truly in their heart saying, oh, well, it's okay, then you'll never have the kinds of sleep problems that a lot of people who come here with. So for a lot of people, and you see this even with parents who have kids, their sleep time is much bigger than their sleep need. Hmm. So if you're somebody who says to me, and, and this is what we would say if you came to the clinic, hey, well, I'm Chris, what can I do for you? They're, well, Chris... It takes me two hours to fall asleep every night. Okay, what time you go to bed? Nine o'clock. Why have you selected nine o'clock as your bedtime? And it's amazing how people look at you like, well, I, I, I don't know, I just, it's when I've always gone to bed, or that's when my wife or my husband goes to bed, or my partner goes to bed. Okay, well, that's good for them. I'm glad they're living their life. Why have you decided, well, you know, I'm gonna be a good partner, so we go to bed together. Well, that's fine. But it certainly sounds to me like you're not particularly sleepy at 9 o'clock because it's taking you an average of two hours to fall asleep. What would you do if you decided your lunchtime was noon and every time you went to the restaurant, you never really felt hungry until 2 o'clock at which point you asked the waitress who'd come over, hey, I'm ready to order. I've been sitting in this booth for two hours. I'm ready to order now. I'm sure that waitress would tell you at some point, hey... Maybe you should just come to my restaurant around two o'clock every day because that seems <laughs> like when you're ready to eat. You know, like you could go get some shopping done, some more work done at the office. Like, why are you beating yourself up over this? You know, and person would say, well, I don't know. Noon is my, my lunchtime. Well, again, how have you determined that? So, for a lot of people, simply selecting their schedule can be a tremendous improvement of their sleep and understanding that while eight, seven and a half might be an average, it may not necessarily be great for you. So I saw a patient today who was wearing a Fitbit. I looked over her Fitbit over the last uh, three to six months, and her average sleep time was seven hours and 15 minutes. I asked her, what time do you, go to, what time do you wake up in the morning? She said, seven o'clock. What time do you go to bed? Nine. Okay, you're going to bed at nine, getting up at seven. That's 10 hours you are expecting to sleep or trying to sleep. Of the 10, you're averaging 7.15. What do you think about that? She goes, it looks like I probably should go to bed a little bit later. Yeah, I think so. Mm -hmm. Because she came in because she was having trouble falling asleep. That's not a problem. That's your brain saying, listen, we just woke up a few hours ago. We're not ready to sleep yet. So I I know you want the day to be done. I know you want to sleep at 9 o'clock. That doesn't make it such that you can do it. So you can either get in bed and just meditate for an hour or two, if you like that, or read, or why don't you stay up till 11? It seems like 11 to 7, that's eight hours, is a little bit more in line with what your Fitbit says you need. Um, so you know, to me, that you know, thinking about these types of things and understanding can really make a big difference in people's sleep right off the bat without seeing a sleep doctor. So
0: let's get really practical. Sleep hygiene. What are some things that we can do starting tonight that is going to help us get a better night's sleep?
1: Yeah, so sleep hygiene is is written about a lot. You know, I always feel like I don't have as much to add there. So I always tell people, just think about your bedroom in terms of your senses. Is it cool? Is it dark? Is it, you know, quiet? Does it smell good? Does it feel good? Um, And, you know, if all of those things are... Are already kind of optimized. I've got a you know expensive mattress and these wonderful sheets that feel really good. I've got a little device that cools my bed, and my device my 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 bedroom is perfectly dark, and my phone's plugged up in the kitchen where it should be. My partner doesn't snore. I'm not sleeping with a dog that's got its own sleep apnea and sleep issue problems. <laughs> you know, then you know if all those things are optimized and you still feel like you're having sleep problems, that's fine, you know, I think we make a little bit too much about sleep hygiene in the sense that, number one, it doesn't solve many people's sleep problems. I don't meet people and I'm like, hey, your room should be dark. Oh, really, because I had like really bright lights on, but let me try the dark thing and <laughs> see what happens. Oh, you're right, it's great, like, you know, for the most part, we're exposed to enough media and have enough common sense to understand dark is probably better than lit up and, and lights, quiet is probably better than loud. Uh, but for some people it can help. Uh, I do think that technology might be a special circumstance. I mean, especially for kids, but even for adults. Yeah, I get in bed and if I can't fall asleep. I just pull my phone up and read about how my favorite sports team's doing and stuff like that. I mean, that's probably not the best thing to do in terms of is it stressing you out? Is this light shining in your face that's interfering with your ability to produce melatonin? Yeah, I think it's unhealthy. So I think it's really important for people to, you know, plug their phones in somewhere remote from their bedroom. And if you're gonna give me the, the line about, well, I use mine for, for an alarm. You know, there were alarm clocks before smartphones. Uh-huh. So to me, unless you're on call for something, I don't really think that the phone should be in your vicinity and you know, I know it's a powerful, I mean, the phone's like a drug to some people, but it's great to unplug from that stuff, particularly in, 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 the, in, the, in the evening. So phones, TVs, video games, laptops, you know, as much as we can set that good example, it's, it's, it's a good thing. So yes, yeah, sleep hygiene is helpful, but don't be upset if you've done everything. You bought the mattresses, sheets, the pajamas, the room darkening shades, the whatever. If you're still having difficulty sleeping, it's okay. Um, you've done everything you can control. Let's come talk to a professional. So I'm sure this never happens to anyone but me.
0: I fall asleep 10, 30 or 11, but then I wake up at three or four in the morning and then I can't go back to sleep. What are some of the things that we can do to get back to sleep? And is the fact that I'm just obsessing about going back to sleep part of the
1: problem. Like it's the worry that really, it, it bothers people, it's this fear. I would embrace it. God, oh, you're, you're alive in interesting times. It's four o'clock in the morning. You're like, life couldn't be better for you. So, let's stop measuring quality of sleep by unconsciousness. Yeah. Oh, if you, if you wake up at three and you go right back to sleep, it's good sleep, but if you're up for an hour it's, it, it's terrible. Because they've done really interesting research that shows that how you feel about the night influences the way you are the next day more than your actual sleep quality, which which is so interesting to me. So if you wake up at three and you were truly up for two hours, now it's five o'clock and you're still awake and you kind of fall back to sleep and get up at six, if the individual says, oh, great, now I got four and a half hours of sleep, well, the day is just ruined, then your day will be ruined. Versus, you know, an individual, you know, I'm, I'm getting ready to fly off to, to Pennsylvania and I'll probably get in late and you know maybe I get everything organized by two o'clock and I've got to be up at seven o'clock the next day for a uh, breakfast I think to myself okay I have five hours I'm gonna make this the best five hours ever and I'm just gonna I'm gonna, I'm gonna be okay the next day and you know you are now it's five perfect is five smart no but I'm not worried about it I don't fear it So I I just think that people need to sort of embrace the fact that you might wake up at three o'clock tonight and not immediately back to sleep. So rest, really focus on what you can control. We can control rest. We can't control sleep. So you close your eyes, meditate. You could use some of those little devices you put on your forehead that allow you to focus yourself and get your mental energy lower if you're one of those people who can't turn your brain down or whatever, or you just... Visualize the book you've always dreamed of writing or the beach house that you'll never buy, but you can kind of create it and lay it out in your mind. So
0: let's talk real quick about some of the new technologies, some of these brain-sensing technologies, Muse headbands, uh, sleep trackers. What are your thought on those kind of things?
1: I think they're great. I think that what you want to do before you buy one of these things is Really understand what your problem is and what these devices can and cannot do. So many people are like, I get in bed, it takes me three hours to fall asleep, I bought this $300 fitness tracker thing that goes under my mattress on my wrist and it says that I get 17% REM sleep and 22% deep sleep. Great. I still can't sleep, but I'm have got I'm $300 poor, and I know that I'm getting 70% deep sleep. I have no idea what that, what that even means. <laughs> and I see that a lot. It's sort of like information without a question. My fitness tracker is constantly telling me, look, Chris, you're not getting enough. You need to get that extra hour or 45 minutes that you're missing on most nights because you're – feel like you've got to answer that email or you've got to do X, Y, and Z with your kids. So to me, they can help you in that way. The biggest thing I think the fitness trackers do are for people who come to my office and say, look, you got to help me. I'm desperate for the last three years. I am lucky if I get two to three hours of sleep at night. Okay. I'm, I'm going to tell you right now that's physiologically impossible. So I want you to buy a fitness tracker. I want you to wear it for the next month. And then let's come back and talk about what it shows they come back and it says well they're getting six, seven hours of sleep every night and it does it every time and they'll either say things like well I think this thing's not working, it thinks that I'm sleeping when I'm very much awake or what it hopefully does is kind of reassure the patient wow you know maybe I am getting more sleep than I think I am because my, my wife says she thinks I'm getting plenty of sleep, but it feels to me like I'm only getting one, two hours, none at night. So now we can start collecting a little bit more objective data that hopefully reassures a patient and helps us focus on, okay, listen, let's get outside of this idea that you're not getting sleep and try to focus on the question why it feels like you're not getting enough sleep, why you feel so poorly during the day even though, yes, you might be getting six to seven hours of sleep. So these things can really help us have some eyes and ears in a situation where unfortunately for the sleep doctor, we often have to rely on what people tell us. And this is where people get into trouble. Hey, primary care doctor, I'm not sleeping. Okay, well here's some Ambien. Oh gosh, I'm still not sleeping. Okay, well here, take some Seroquel, which is an antipsychotic. And a patient of mine just yesterday was taking Ambien Veroquil and Tamazepam. I so said, why do you take these? Because I can't sleep without them. That's not a true statement. So those fitness trackers and things like that can be really helpful in getting some real data beyond what you experience. And that's important. And then the Muse you mentioned, you know, one of the most common complaints people come to us is, is that I can't shut my mind off. So this, these little biofeedback devices, and the one I typically use is Muse. I don't, I don't work for them. Um, is that this device allows your brain's activity to be measured and quantified, and it turns it into the sound of like the ocean or a city. So, you know, about this time during the day or after lunch or whenever you happen to, you know, you have some time to, to yourself, you put the little muse band on, it syncs with your phone, and you practice the ability to turn your brain down. When you're successful, the sound of the ocean gets quieter. If you're not successful, it gets louder. So you can actually practice this as a skill so that when you go to bed at night, you know exactly how to turn your brain down. Um, It's a wonderful device just for kind of managing that sort of mental energy, stress, anxiety, to learn that, hey, this is in your control. You can get into your cubicle and go back there to your little box cave and put it on and five minutes, you know, practice that idea of turning your mind off at night, resettling during a stressful part of the day, it's amazingly impactful for a lot of people
0: you've you've talked about sleeping pills that you shouldn't confuse sedation with sleep how about uh, those pediatricians that are giving out melatonin gummies to kids to help them sleep it's really an inappropriate
1: thing you know my kid can't sleep okay well here give them melatonin because why we need to sedate some children is that what you're saying? Like, okay, your child needs sedation for sleep. So here, give them this thing to make them sleepy. Are you saying that, okay, well your child makes an inappropriate amount of melatonin anyway. We all make melatonin. So I would much rather a pediatrician say, listen, once you go out instead of buying melatonin gummy bears, buy a bunch of dimmer switches at Lowe's or Home Depot and after dinner, really dim the light levels in your house and, and try to create more of, a, 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 of an environment that is conducive to their own melatonin release. And again, if you're struggling, if a kid's struggling to fall asleep, maybe their seven o'clock bedtime is not appropriate. They need to go to bed at eight. Or maybe the napping that they're doing throughout the day is so much that they don't have as much drive to sleep at night. So, you know, when our kids were seven years old, we told them, look, you're seven years old, you're practically an adult now, you don't need a sleep time anymore, your bedtime anymore. They looked at you like, really? You don't care when I go to bed? Absolutely not. As long as you're in your bedroom around 7 or 8 o'clock at night, you're not bothering me or mommy or brothers and sisters, then I don't care when you go to bed. And th- that rule still stands today. You go to bed whenever you want to. I mean, I'm not going to tell you to turn a light out. You want to sit down look at comic books all night? Brother, you go right ahead and do it. Now, what I don't tell them is every morning at 6.30 or 7, I'm going to wake them up with a smile. And when they say things like, Dad, I'm so sleepy. Can you go to work and come back at lunchtime and take me to school late because I'm so sleepy or I didn't get enough sleep last night? The answer is and always will be no. You are 15 years old. You can deal with a difficult night of sleep. It's not that big a deal. Let's go have breakfast and talk about it. I'll bet after a shower and a couple hours, you're going to feel great and probably more likely to sleep wonderfully the next day. So we don't put any pressure on our children to sleep. So let's, let's elevate our discussion about your child's sleep beyond we need to sedate him and what messages are we sending him? Because I got a 15 and 18 and a 21 year old kids right now that are excellent sleepers. And you can tell, like even when my son's got this big swim meet and his college recruiting re- relies on it, he just goes right to sleep. Cause I've told him Well, you sleep or you don't sleep, it's not gonna affect the way you swim that much tomorrow. You've been sleeping great for the last 29 days. You're better than one night of inadequate sleep. So you can see over time they've developed this sense of confidence with their sleep. You know, and realism with their sleep that really frees people up. They don't have any anxiety about being awake at night. That's where I want all my patients, all my athletes, all my clients to be. Let's talk realistically and not fear-based about it.
0: Dr. Chris Winter, thanks so much for being on the episode. Hey, Bob,
1: I appreciate it, and I appreciate your interest in the subject and, and, and having me. I, that's a real honor. If you are having
0: problems sleeping because of deeper issues at home or at work, it might help to talk with someone in the Employee Assistance Program. They have great experience with a number of issues, and if needed, they can point you in the right direction so you can get the help you need. U.S. employees will find links and contact information on HPE Wellness. And employees outside the U.S. can find it on the global wellness page. That's all for this edition. Our thanks once again to Dr. Chris Winter, author of The Sleep Solution, Why Your Sleep is Broken and How to Fix It. And thank you for listening in. Please subscribe to the Straight Talk for Real Life podcast so that you never miss an episode. Let's talk again soon.